Our God is truly great, isn't He? I love that psalm because it's, it's uh, you know, it's kind of like the, the praise psalms in the Bible. You know, it's a, it's a call to praise, you know. It's pointing and saying, look how great God is. And then I love the part, sing with me. I always want to turn around and say, sing with me. How great is our God? It's truly great. What a great time of worship. It's great to, to be here and, and uh, to preach for you this morning. I'm glad that my wife and my kids are here. This is almost home. You know, not quite, but, but almost once they get here and we get our house, and I know God's working that out, but it's great to have them here, and it's great to be with you here this morning in worship. Let me ask you a question. I want to begin with a question this morning. When you've gone through a difficult time in your life, has anyone said this phrase to you? I'll be praying for you kind of a silly question, right? We've all had people say that to us. Maybe in the past week or two, we've, we've heard that phrase, or maybe you've said that to someone in the past week. I know I have, and I know I've had people say it to me. But let me ask you another question, and be honest here. How many of you, when you've heard this phrase, have questioned the sincerity of that response? Anybody? A lot of optimists in the room, aren't there? <laughs> when I was young in my, in my faith, I, there was a time when I was questioning whether that response was sincere. You know, I didn't really know if people meant it when they said, I'll be praying for you. I kind of thought of it like, you know, when you're, when you're walking uh, in Walmart or you're, you're out somewhere and you run into someone you hadn't seen in a while and you catch up and then at the end, what do you say? Hey, let's keep in touch, you know? Let's keep in touch. Do you really mean that? You know, I, I, I thought, uh, you know, I've said it before and not meant it, um, but, but I, I kind of viewed that phrase in that way. I'll be praying for you. I didn't really know if people were serious when they said, I'll be praying for you. And that's until I had a couple of encounters with people that made me think otherwise. First was a youth pastor. He was actually a youth and college pastor, and I was in college at the time, and I was going through a difficult time spiritually, and I, I sent, you know, I just let him know about this prayer request I had, and he said that phrase, I'll be praying for you. And then uh, later on that week, he showed up at my place of work, and he said, man, I've been praying for you, and God has just prompted me to uh, come here and just pray for you uh, directly. So he prayed for me right there. At, uh, at my place of business, at, at where I was working, and uh, that made a big impact on my life. Another one was a seminary professor who told his students each, uh, each term that he was praying for them, and we had to turn in our, our prayer request to him, and um, he, he prayed for all of his students. And I, be, I was thinking, it, does he really pray for every one of his students? And it was later on in the semester, and he tracked me down, in the hallway and said, look, I've been praying. I know you requested this. I've been praying for this. I want to see how it's going. And man, that made a huge impact in my life. When I, when I had these encounters, I thought, these guys mean it when they say, I'll be praying for you. And I've adopted a lot of those things. A lot of those things I do as well. You know, sometimes I'll pray for people directly or I'll contact someone 
and uh, let them know specific things I'm praying for them about. And I do this not so people will look at me and say, look at how super spiritual Graham is, but I want people to be comforted in the fact that when I say, I'm praying for you, I mean it. And I want you to know this morning that I am praying for you all as a church. Ever since Leslie and I heard about the opportunity to come to Jacksonville, I've been praying for you. And I've been praying specific things for you. And this morning, I want to do something unique because it's kind of a a special service, not because my preaching is anything special, but because it's my first time to preach here uh, since moving here. So what I want to do this morning is something unique. I want to share with you my prayer for you as a church. Now, I want you to know when you hear these points of prayer this morning, I don't want you to think, man, Graham just doesn't think too highly of us spiritually because listen to those points of prayer. I don't want you to think that. I've met a lot of you in the past couple of weeks, and I know that many of you are living God-honoring lives. My prayer for you this morning as you hear this message that you would just be encouraged. If you're pursuing godliness, I pray this morning that you're just encouraged to continue pursuing godliness. Continue to put one foot in front of the other and follow hard after God. Scripture does that for us, doesn't it? There are many times in Scripture where we as believers are just, we're just kind of encouraged, you know, just continue, keep on keeping on, you know. Beware of these things. Continue putting one foot in front of the other. And I pray that that happens for you this morning, that you're just encouraged. But I also know that there's a good chance that there are some here this morning that aren't living the life that God has called you to live. There's a good chance that that's the case. And my prayer for you this morning is that right now, at this moment, this moment be a a defining moment for you spiritually. I pray that this morning, if that's you, that God would do a great work in your heart and life, and this would be a major turning point in your life spiritually, and that you would begin this morning to live the life that God has called you to live as a, as a person. Maybe it's as a believer, maybe it's as a non-believer. God, is, God has called us to live for Him, and I pray that God would do a great work in your heart and life. So here it is, my prayer for you. First, I pray that each and every one of you have a right view of God. Now let me explain what I mean by a right view of God. What I don't mean is this. I don't mean I pray that each and every one of you have God completely figured out. That'd be hypocritical of me, right? Or y'all would think, man, what does this guy know that I don't know? No, there's a lot of mystery to God, isn't there? For example, the Trinity. Let's talk about that for a minute. That's, that's kind of a funny statement, isn't it? Let's talk about the Trinity for a minute. Um, God is one in essence God, three distinct persons. Now, many people have tried to rationalize and reason this out, and in history they've been, you know, cast aside as, as false teachers because there's nothing in creation 
that we can point to and say, this is exactly like the Trinity. This explains it perfectly. Now, there's a lot of mystery to God, isn't there? There's some things we hear about God and we go, God, that goes beyond reason. I can't wrap my mind around it, but I know that Scripture says it, so I'm just going to embrace it. And that's the proper way to handle it. But there's a lot of mystery to God, so that's not what I mean. What I do mean is this. When I say right view of God, my prayer for each and every one of you is that your knowledge about God as He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures be progressing, be moving forward. That you either start today or you continue to seek out, seek to know the God of the Bible. God as He has revealed in the Scriptures. We don't have to look too long and hard today to see that the world doesn't think too highly of the God of the Bible. Am I right? Now I'm going to do something. I'm not sure if this is very popular to do my first uh, Sunday to preach here, but I'm going to show you a clip from a well-known woman, Oprah Winfrey. Let's look at this clip. God out of the box because I grew up in the Baptist church and there were, you know, rules and, you know, belief systems and doctrine. And um, I happened to be um, sitting in church in my late 20s and I was going to this church where you had to get there at, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning or you couldn't get a seat and a very uh, charismatic minister and everybody was just, you know, into the sermon. And uh, this great uh, minister was preaching about how great God was and how omniscient and omnipresent and God is everything. And then he said, and the Lord thy God is a jealous God. And I was, you know, caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said jealous. And something struck me. Just, and I was like, uh, I think about 27 or 28. I was thinking, God is all, God is omnipresent, God is all. And God's also jealous. jealous. God is jealous of me. Um, and something about that didn't, didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. And so that's when the, the, the search for something more than doctrine uh, started to stir within me. Wow. Well, I wasn't sure if I should uh, go after Oprah on the first Sunday. I'm not going to, I'm just letting her speak for herself there. Something more than doctrine was what she was looking for. And, and it's funny, she actually misunderstands, if you notice, she misunderstands uh, the jealousy of God in Scripture, which the other one, Jim and I were talking about, it would probably make her more uncomfortable. Um, but she misunderstands it. But, but the point I want to make here is she chooses, she, she thinks that she has the authority to kind of pick and choose what God is like and accept certain things and, and leave those things she, don't, she doesn't like. And, and many in our world treat God in this way. Look at this clip here. Many, many treat God in this way. They treat Him like food in a cafeteria. They take the things they like and they leave those things they don't like. That's the way many view God, and that's what, that's what Oprah was doing as well. She, she accepted the fact that God was an all-powerful God and, and whatever else she said, but she 
had trouble with the fact that God was a jealous God, treating them like food in a cafeteria. Listen, if God began with us, in other words, if we just conjured up this idea of God in our minds, it makes sense. We could make him whatever we want it to be, right? We could accept this, and we could leave this, and accept this, and, and whatever we wanted. If God began with us, what does Scripture say? We didn't begin, uh, God did not begin with us. We began with God. The very first verse of Scripture. In the beginning, God created everything. That's the shortened version. It's the Bible, the remix. In the beginning, God created everything. Everything came from God. God is the one who is eternal. And we're told in Scripture that God is also unchanging. Therefore, He must be understood in a certain way. He must under, be understood as He has revealed Himself to us in the Word of God. Here's what John MacArthur said. He said, we must then turn to God's Word to understand what it affirms about God. Listen to what God's Word says about God. These are just a few things. God created everything. He is too great to be described. He is good. God helps those people in times of trouble. He is mighty. He is our rock. He is our hope. He is near. God is our salvation. He is sovereign. God is holy. Only God is worthy of glory. Only God is worthy of worship. God is our Father. He is Spirit. All-knowing. Knowable, yet unknowable. Approachable, yet unapproachable. God is living. God is the King of kings. These are the popular ones. God is justice. He is judge. He's a God of wrath. Yet He's also a God of love. Gracious and merciful. He is God Almighty. Listen. Since God, since we began with God and God not with us, He must be thought of in this way. If there's anything in your thinking that is out of line with the way God is revealed in the Scriptures, you have to make changes accordingly. We need to be searching the Scriptures to seek to know the God of the Bible. And if anything's out of line with, the, with, with your thinking, you need to make changes accordingly. Because God is to be understood in this way. And this is why. Maybe some of you are here and saying, what's the big deal? Why is that important? Because this, get this, this is very important. Right thinking leads to right living. You want to live rightly for God, you've got to think rightly about Him. Don't believe me? Just look at all the false belief systems in our world. Wrong views about God. And in the Scriptures, too. The false belief, you know, those false teachers in the Scripture. It starts out with a wrong view of God and, and it results in wrong living for him. So we gotta, we got to think rightly about God if we're going to live rightly for him. Here's a second point of prayer here. I pray that each and every one of you have a right 
view of Scripture. I recently had a conversation with someone who was, who was amazed when I told her that Scripture was my only ultimate and reliable authority. She thought I was putting too much stock into one book. And I told her, well, Scripture teaches that, that all of it, all of Scripture is inspired by God. It's given to us by God. I said, if, if the Bible is God's word to us, what other authority would I place myself under other than that? If that's true. But there's many who, who don't think too highly of the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is inspired by God. Now that word inspired doesn't mean what, what we often, we often use that word to mean, man, it just, well, it makes me feel good. It kind of stirs my heart. You know, the Bible does do that, but that's not what it means there. Inspiration can also be translated God breathed or filled up with the breath of God. That's what scripture is. Scripture is, all of scripture is filled up with the breath of God. This means this, Scripture is God's Word to such an extent that to disbelieve or disobey the Word of God is the same thing as disbelieving or disobeying God to, him, to His face, to, you know, as if He spoke it to us audibly. When I was young and, and we had chores to do around the house, sometimes my parents weren't there, so they would leave us little notes. Have this done by this time. And we knew that the words on, those, on that piece of paper carried with it the authority of our parents. If we disobeyed the words that were written on that sheet of paper, it was the same thing as disobeying our parents as if they, you know, as if they spoke it to us directly. Same is true of the Word of God. The Word of God, the Bible, are God's words to such an extent to disbelieve or disobey him is the same as disbelieving or disobeying God himself. 2 Timothy 3.16 also says this. Not only is the, the Bible inspired by God, it's profitable for the people of God. The word of God is profitable for us, for daily living. It's given by God and it's profitable for us. Therefore, you and I and all of us need to be governed by it. We need to be under its authority. This book right here, hopefully you own it, is the most precious and valuable thing you own on this earth. It's the most valuable thing. It's as precious as water. According to Ephesians 5.26, it's referred to as food in Jeremiah 15.16. Think about how important food and water are to you. And Scripture is to be equally as precious. When I was growing up, my dad had my brother and I memorize Scripture. And one of the Scriptures, one of the first Scriptures he had us memorize was Psalm 119.105. Anybody remember that? It's off your head or learning it in... in uh, in Sunday school, it says, Thy word, doing the King James, it's the easiest to memorize, isn't it? Is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. See, my dad wanted me to understand something at a young age. He wanted me 
to understand that the, the Bible was my guide for life. He wanted me to be placed under the authority of God's Word. He wanted me to understand that from a young age and be guided and directed and governed by the Word of God. Wherever I went and whatever decisions that I made, and my, my, my prayer for you is the same. So I pray you have a right view of Scripture. Third point of prayer here is I pray that you have, each and every one of you have a right view of yourself. Of, of self in general, right view of yourself and, and just people in general, self. The world, society, teaches that, you know, human beings, they're not so bad. Even most belief systems believe that, that mankind is just not sinful, just, just forgetful at worst. At, you know, the worst possible thing, they're just, they're just forgetful but they're inherently good. Scripture teaches otherwise. Uh, according to a study done by the Barna Group, check, uh, check this out, the study done by the Barna Group, 85% of American adults believe that they'll stand before God and be judged. That's surprising, actually. That surprised me. But listen, only 11% think they will fail the divine inspection. Reason why is because people think that they're good enough on their own. They have enough good within them to pass this test, to pass this inspection. Scripture, however, teaches that apart from Christ, one will fail that inspection. One of my uh, favorite passages in scripture on on sin is Romans 3 and you can turn there we're going to we're going to spend just a little bit of time there Romans chapter 3 it's a great chapter on on sin and its effects and I'm just going to kind of summarize here briefly but basically what Paul is saying in this passage of scripture is that sin is universal you know he 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 addresses the gentiles in Romans 1 and then in Romans 2, he has to address the Jewish people because they're like, you know, they're probably like, yeah, you tell those sinful Gentiles, Paul, you know. And then Paul turns to the, the Jewish people and he said, hey, you guys are in the same boat. You practice the same things. And then in Romans 3, he just summarizes, hey, sin is universal. It's affected every person without exception. And then he lays out the effects of this. From this chapter, we're told that because sin is universal, all people without exception are, A, it's in your outline there, without excuse. All people are without excuse, Romans 3, 9 and 10. Paul says, what then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and non-Jews, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Paul's making the point that sin affects every human being. Without excuse is taken from Romans 2.1. Paul uses that phrase there, and it just means that other than, other than through repentance and faith in Christ, none will be exempt from God's judgment. There are no exemptions when it comes to sin. We need to be forgiven. 
Paul also makes the point, because sin is universal, all people without exception are be proven guilty. Verses 11 through 18, Paul shows that the evidence against mankind is overwhelming when it comes to sin. Read along with me, verses 11 through 18. Paul says, There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The evidence stacked against us is overwhelming when it comes to sin. All have, as Paul says in this passage, corrupt understanding, corrupt will, corrupt speech, corrupt actions, and corrupt outlook on life. See, Paul also says, because sin is universal, all people without exception are accountable to God. Romans 3.19 Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Listen, Adam was our representative. We know this story, right? He was created, he was our representative. Day seven was the world the way God intended it to be. He rested because he was finished with his created work. And we know the story. Because of Adam's sin, sin entered into the world and it ruined God's perfect creation. Because of Adam's fall, we all fell, right? But before we go blaming Adam for everything, we need to realize something in Scripture. Scripture says we're all responsible for our sin, right? We have all repeated the sin of Adam. All of us, without exception in this room at one time or another, we have chosen to go at life on our own, haven't we? We've rejected God's rule and reign in our lives at one time, haven't we? That's repeating the sin of Adam. And because of this, according to the Scriptures, we are accountable to God. Meaning we have to answer to Him. Not just for our actions, it cuts deeper than that, for our speech. Not just for our speech, it cuts deeper than that, for the, for the thoughts and the intents of our heart, even if we don't commit them. And we know deep down we're corrupt, right? With sin, we, we can sense it. And we have to answer to God for those things. Mankind will have to answer, be accountable for those things. Paul also makes the point that because sin is universal, all people without exception are D, in need. Romans 3.20 For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul's point here is, situation's bad and there's nothing you can do about it on your own. No one has ever been made right 
by their outward actions. We have to have a change on the inside. Our inward condition has to be changed. And we can't do that on our own. Therefore, we're in need of something we don't have, which brings me to my next point. I pray that each and every one of you have a right view of Christ. Now, there's many in in society today that think Christ is a pretty cool character, right? You know? Hey, yeah, yeah, I like like Jesus, you know? He kind of of, uh, went against the norm, you know? He kind of bumped the system. You know, I like him. He was real, he was real bold. He, he had some cool teachings on how we're to love one another, you know. Christ is all right. But they don't see him as necessary. Society may think that, that uh, Jesus was a good moral teacher. You know, he, he had some cool ways about him that maybe we can learn from. But his life and what he did and the work he accomplished is not necessary. Many view him in that way. And unfortunately, this has affected many in the church, this viewpoint. Notice this uh, from the Barna group as well. They reported that that, uh, over one-fourth of so-called Christians agree with the statement that if a person is good or does enough good things for others, they want her place in heaven. That statement right there shows that there's a lot of people out there that don't think Christ is necessary. Many feel this way. And you know why? Because people like to think that works count for something when it comes to salvation. They do. There's a story of a man who was hiking on a mountain, and he uh, loses his footing and falls off the side of a cliff. And on his way down, a branch kind of breaks his fall. And he kind of struggles to get back up to the ledge and can't do it after a while. So just in desperation, he just calls out, is there anyone up there who can help me? Surprisingly, a voice calls back. It says, yes, I can help you. But first you've got to let go of the branch. So the guy sits there a while, kind of weighs his options, and he calls back again. You, th- you know what he called back? Is there anyone else up there who can help me the point of the story is this we just society in general people in general are looking for someone to help them help themselves and many view salvation in that way they're looking for someone to help them help themselves they don't like to be they don't like to think of themselves as as in need and helpless but that's what scripture says about us Salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, plus nothing, minus nothing. Plus nothing, minus nothing. Listen, if there was a way for us to be saved by our merit, by our good works, or through ignorance, through just not knowing, if there was a way for that to happen, Christ would not have had to come empty himself, take on flesh, dwell among us, live the perfect life in our place, and be killed. If there was another way. Christ came because he is the only way. 
He is the only way to be made right with God. You may be here this morning, you're like, Graham, I know this. I know this. I've made this decision, I know this. Praise God that that's you. But let me tell you something. There are people in this church, there are people out there in your neighborhoods and your families that think that their best is good enough. And you've got to tell them that it's not. This has got to be your message because there are people who think their best is good enough. They think that works, their works count for something when it comes to salvation. And you've got to tell them it doesn't. Maybe you're here this morning and you think that your best is good enough. I'm telling you, it's not. I pray this morning that you would come to the end of yourselves and see your, your, that you're in desperate need of something you can't get on your own. You are a sinner in need of a Savior, and I pray that you would trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Only in Him, talking about Christ, only in Him is there forgiveness. Only in Him is there redemption. You know what redemption means? It just means to be reclaimed for God. Sin separated us, but through what Christ did, we're able to be reclaimed for God. Only in Him is there righteousness. We not only need to be forgiven of sin, we need to have a record cleared. Only Christ's sinless life does that, makes that possible. So only in Him is there righteousness. Only in Him is there peace with God. Scripture is clear that because of our sin, we are enemies of God. But through what Christ has done and through trusting in Him alone for salvation, we move from being enemies of God to being at peace with God. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray you have a right view of Christ. I also pray that you have a right view of faith. A right view of faith. When we think about salvation, we often think about the fact that we've been saved by God, which is true. But what we often neglect to talk about and think about is the fact that we've been saved for God. We've not only been saved by God, we've been saved for God. Many think of salvation as just something I did a long time ago, just kind of gets me off the hook, you know? It's a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's what they view salvation as. It's just something you do to get off the hook so I can be free to live the way I want to live. That's not salvation. That's not according to the Scriptures. Scripture is clear. The purpose of salvation is to free people from sin, not to free them to partake in sin. Did you get that? The purpose of salvation is to free us from sin, not to free us to freely partake in sin. Scripture is clear that as believers, we're to be pursuing godliness. 1 Timothy 4, 7. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's what we're to be doing. Listen, God has promised He is going to complete the work He began in us. But he didn't want you to wait idly by for that to happen. 
You know, in, in, in Hebrews it says that, that he, he who began a good work in us is going to finish it. He's going to complete it. But what are we called to do? Run the race. Pursue godliness. Many people think of, of discipline as just kind of a bad word, you know? Something that just kind of binds us up. It's restricting, you know? But here's the ironic thing. Through discipline comes freedom. Discipline is the price of freedom. I'll give you an example. When I was uh, in, in uh, high school, I ran track. And I loved running track. I enjoyed it. I just didn't like practicing, you know? I would practice after, after school when we were supposed to, but I didn't want to practice at night or on the weekends. I didn't want to train at all because I didn't want it cutting into my personal life. I wanted to be free. I wanted to be free. When I left track practice, hey, I'll be back to that tomorrow. I want to be free to live and do what I want to do. Well, I paid the price my first track meet. I was a sophomore. I even stayed up late the night before because I didn't want track to cut into my personal life. And we had an indoor meet at the University of Arkansas. And I lined up and I already knew I was in trouble. Because, you know, they put the sophomores way out in the, in the outside lane. So I was way out all by myself out in the outside lane. And I look, and, and on the inside lane is a guy, his name was Chris Akins. And he had just signed with the Razorbacks as a defensive back. He ended up playing in the NFL. So you just get the idea of how fast he was. And there were other guys that looked just like him, you know. So I'm out there by myself, and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to get it up and go, you know. And... Uh, the gun sounds, and I'm noticing that he is passing me on the front curve. Now, if you know anything about track, it doesn't matter how fast you are, you should never, especially in indoor track, when somebody's in lane one and you're out in lane six or seven, they should never pass you on the opening curve, but he did. And uh, they all eventually passed me before the race was over. And I was, I was just, oh, I was just destroyed, you know? And, of course, I go back to the, to the stands, and my friends didn't help me out at all. They were in the floor. They were just on the ground laughing. And, uh, but I learned something important that day. Here's what I learned. I learned by, by training hard, I was not restricted in performance. Through, through, through difficult training, through disciplining myself, I was not restricted in my performance. And the same is true of our spiritual life. We're to be disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Don't think of it as a bad thing. Think of discipline as the price of freedom. That's the way we're to live as, as Christians. We're to be pursuing godliness. So I pray that you would be doing this. Pray that you'd have a right view of faith. Last point. I pray that each and every one of you would have a right view of the church. Unfortunately, many today don't, think, don't see the church as necessary. George Barna wrote a book. I've been referring to the Barna Group a lot. They do a lot of great research. He wrote a book, and it's all about this trend of, of uh, people that, that are kind of leaving the church... And just saying, hey, look, all that's important is me and God. That's all that matters, me and God. The church, not necessary, just me and God. I can be, I can be the church 
in my home on Sunday morning or on, on, a, on a boat fishing or wherever. It's just me and God. That's all that's important. Barna calls these, these people revolutionaries. He kind of speaks favorably of them, which, which is not a good thing. But, um, but yeah, this, this is a trend. This is, this is common today. Many don't see the church as necessary. Let me tell you a problem with that. The New Testament teaches that the church, congregational life, is the very means by which we mature as Christians. It's true. You can't look in the, in the book of Acts or in Paul's letters or in some of the general letters and not see the importance of preaching, the importance of discipline, the importance of congregational fellowship and the central practices of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The church is necessary. For us to mature as believers. I need you. I need the church to mature, to be what God has called me to be. And I pray that you all would see that you need the church to mature in your faith spiritually. Hebrews 10.25. We, we probably know this one. It's been used many a times. But it's true. It's, it's in the Word of God. It says, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So I pray that you would value the church, that you would see the church as, as the means by which you are to mature spiritually. And I also pray this about your view of the church. I pray that not only would you value the church, but you would value unity within the church. That's another one of those teachings that you can't, Look too far. You can't turn too far in the Scriptures and not see something written about unity. How many of y'all have heard it said that there are strength in numbers? Anybody hear that? Anybody have heard that before? It's not exactly true, is it? Think about it. Because if a large number of people are disunified, that can be a great weakness. Not strength in numbers. There's strength in unity. There's strength in a unified purpose. We're to be unified. And not just around anything, right? Paul says we're to be unified around truth. We're to be unified around truth. Ephesians 4.4. 4. He says there is one body and one spirit, just as you are also called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Paul says this, there is one Spirit working in every believer. There is one Lord to whom we've all come. There is one God and Father over all of us. And we are one body, united as the people of God. And what are we unified around? One faith. One faith. We're not unified around, some are, we're not to be, unified around confusing doctrine or diverse doctrine. We're to have one faith. We're to be unified around one faith. We have the same life with God, right? The same Christ, the same Spirit. And listen, we're to have the, the same core understanding of the Word of God. We're to be unified around that. That's why this church and other fellowship Bible churches like it emphasize the preaching and teaching of the Word of God Sunday after Sunday because we're to be unified 
around truth. We're to be unified around the truth of the, core, uh, of the Christian message. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I pray this for you as well. Pray that you would value the church. Pray that you would value unity within the church. I want to end this morning by just praying this for you. Imagine that. I'm going to end this morning by praying for you. I want to pray these specific things for you, and I want you to know that I'm going to be continuing to pray for you in this way because I think if we can get on, uh, on the right page as believers with this, man, something incredible is going to happen here at Fellowship Bible Church Jacksonville. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that each and every one in this church would think rightly about you. And I pray that that right thinking would result in right living for you. I pray that each and every one in this church would place themselves under the authority of your word and be governed by it. I pray for the believers in this room that their hearts would be broken for the lost and those without you and that they would take this message of the gospel to those who think their best is good enough for you, that they would show them that it's not. Pray for those in this room that think their best is good enough for you. Pray that you do a great work in their heart and life and that they would come to the end of themselves and they would see their need of Christ and that they would trust in Him alone for salvation. Pray for each and every one in this room that they would understand that discipline is important, that we're to be pursuing godliness and that they would see discipline as the price of freedom and that they would pursue godliness, that they'd be working out what you're working within them. And God, I pray that each and every one here would think rightly about the church, that they would value the church, that they would see the church as the very means by which they're to mature as Christians and that they would strive for unity within the church. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Graham. It's um, just as we talked this week uh, about um, how we're going to be working together over the next several months. Um, want to ask you to, to, to pray for Graham and I um, uh, this Wednesday and Thursday as we get away to just pray and plan uh, for our future and uh, make some plans for that. Um, we're we're going to be talking about some significant things in terms of uh, ministry direction and, and all of that. So Graham and I really want to, over the next several months uh, while I am uh, continue to be here, we, we want to model for you what, what real partnership and ministry looks like. We, we want to demonstrate to you uh, that working uh, together in a way that's uh, unified and uh, all about 
um, the effectiveness of this body of believers, uh, we want to show you that, that that can be done. And God, God has put um, us in a real unique position um, to be able to, uh, to have 